Hebrews chapter 10. A few moments, I would like to read verses 19 through 25. I don't think we usually express this gratitude publicly, but hope we do privately. I just want to say that it's always good to have Dave and Kathy with us. We're glad for their ministry at Crossroads. But we, we love seeing you folks and uh, enjoy the fellowship with you occasionally on Sunday nights. Thank you for coming. going to read for us then these verses uh, 19 through 25 therefore brothers since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh and since we have a great priest over the house of god let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. If uh, Luke 15 can be called the lost and found department of the New Testament, then Hebrews chapter 10 can be called the lettuce garden because I think in no other place do we find three exhortations in such close succession to one another, beginning with the words, let us. Last Sunday evening, we began to open up this passage, and because I had three Sunday evenings in a row, I thought it would be good to do something that had some continuity. And in God's providence, these three exhortations came to my mind. Now, I said last week that this passage is made up of two indicatives and three imperatives. Those are the technical theological terms again for this evening. I defined indicatives as statements that indicate something. They're just statements of truth. They reveal something. Imperatives are commands. They're directives. They're exhortations. They're duties. That's something we are called upon to do. In fact, that's a helpful way to think of the difference between indicatives and imperatives. Indicatives are the done. Imperatives are the do. Indicatives are the dones in this case because it's plural. Imperatives are the do's. And I think it's helpful also to realize that almost without exception, the do's are based upon the dones. Okay? That's how we use indicatives and imperatives. I gave an illustration last week. I'll give two more tonight. If we are experiencing heavy snow and ice, 
during those few weeks that it occasionally happens here in Kentucky. It could be that a father would say to his son, since I have purchased plenty of rock salt, son, I want you to go out now and spread it liberally on the sidewalk and driveway. What the son is to do is based upon something that has been done. The father purchased rock salt. The son is called upon to spread it where it needs to be. Or perhaps a mother would say to her daughter, Sweetheart, I have purchased all of the ingredients necessary for the casserole, and now I'd like you to make it. So you have a sense followed by a command to do something. And that's what the writer to the Hebrews is doing for us in this passage. I have said repeatedly now there are two senses and there are three let us. I asked for the uh, chalkboard tonight. That's really going way back to an old-fashioned <laughs> uh, visual aid. We, we have uh, Pastor Keith and others who are just very, very good at... Um, making PowerPoints and making them very attractive. And I remember a few weeks ago, Jonathan actually used an overhead. That was kind of retro. I'm going all the way back to the chalkboard. <laughs> At least it's not a slate board. There's a story behind this. I remember in uh, probably around the year 1980 or 1981, we looked at our um, checking account as a church and concluded that we had enough money to buy this chalkboard and to put it down in the classroom where Linda teaches, which became where we had our midweek service, where we had our lunchroom, and eventually became an adult Sunday school classroom. And it was just the greatest thing in the world to have a movable chalkboard that we could use. And now we're just about to get rid of it, and you should talk to Mr. Hoke. He'll give you a really good deal he will pay you something to put it on a truck, but it's still here. So I'm going to use it tonight. And I just want to show you um, an illustration very quickly of the, uh, the duns and the do's. So we, we do have um, indicatives. This thing is wobbly, but that's okay. And we have imperatives. And I've said already that you can think of the indicatives as the done, and you can think, if you like, of the imperatives as the do. But if you want to see the relationship of the um, indicatives to the imperatives, it might be helpful in this particular passage to see the sense, two of them, I'll put it in quotes, and then... Based upon those duns, those indicatives, there are three imperatives. So I'll just put an abbreviation here. And the reason why I'm drawing this out is because I want you to see the relationship of the imperatives to the indicatives. Imperatives are based upon the indicatives. They grow out of, they rest upon they are rooted in. Now, let's just erase this a minute and put the appropriate words in here with regard to our passage. There are two things the writer to the Hebrews 
says we have, we presently possess. We have confidence to enter, and I know these words are very small, but at least you can hear me, you can see sort of what I'm writing. And we have a great priest over the house of God. And because we have confidence to enter and a great priest, the writer says there are at least three things we should do. We need to draw near, that would be to God in prayer. We need to hold fast or tightly, and we need to stir up. But again, you see that what we are to do, this is the done, and these are the do's. What we are to do is based upon what has been done. We could not do this. We could not draw near to God if a way had not been made into the Holy of Holies. And we would dare not do these things if we didn't have a great priest over the house of God. But because we have this confidence to enter, purchased for us by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and because we have a great priest over the house of God, we can do the things that God is telling us to do through the writer. We can draw near, and we ought to. We can and ought to hold fast our confession of hope. And we can and ought to stir one another up. So we've looked at the first one, the first one uh, imperative or the first do last Sunday evening. Let me just elaborate for a moment on this. We presently have, I'm talking now about the Duns. We have confidence, unquestionable warrant. We have the right, we have the privilege to enter the holy places That is to say, we have the right and privilege and warrant to come into the immediate, welcomed, reconciled presence of God. And this confidence of entrance was purchased for us by our Savior, who satisfied on our behalf the wrath of God, which was rightly directed toward us. By making a perfect atonement for our sins and by being made a curse for us, Jesus tore down the curtain. He removed the barrier and he opened the way for us into the Holy of Holies. That's what he did for us. And because he did for that for us, we have confidence to enter. It's a done deal. And it's a wonderfully done deal. The other thing that is done for us is that after the Lord Jesus did that, in connection with doing it, he entered into the immediate presence of God upon his ascension. He went into the Holy of Holies. And he became for us God's final and greater than Aaron, greater than Moses, priest, over God's house. I want you to just go back 
one moment with me to chapter 3 and notice verses 5 and 6. In chapter 3, verse 5, see the contrast between Moses and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were written or that were to be spoken later. But, now feel the contrast, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed. You might want to circle the little word if. We are his house if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. See how similar that sounds to uh, the text that we're looking at tonight. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. If we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So the Lord Jesus Christ has become now the final priest, the perfect priest over the household of God. And that's why in the passage we're looking at, the writer can say, in addition to having confidence to enter, we have a great priest over the house of God. So I'm just reminding you of this wonderful work that the Lord Jesus Christ has done on our behalf and how um, we have certain responsibilities now that are based upon that. So, two senses, three, let us. Let us draw near, let us hold fast, let us stir up. Now, tonight we're looking at the second one. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. 17 words, that's all, in this one do. We've seen the two dones. We're looking at the second do, the second imperative. Only 17 words. Now, how would you outline verse 23? Take a look at it. For you guys that are learning how to handle the scriptures and to analyze them and to see uh, the structure, do you see anything emerging out of Verse 23, let us hold fast. You, you certainly are struck immediately with the fact that this is an imperative. This is a do. This is something I have to do. I'm being called to obedience here. And I'm glad that the writer included himself. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Four, key word. This is what we sometimes call a ground. The duty is grounded in something. It's rooted in something. It's based upon something. It's a reason. This is what I want you to do, says the writer, because for he who promised is faithful. That's what verse 23 says, he who promises faithful. Now, do you see a structure there? Could you outline that if your life depended on it? Could you, could you produce a, a good outline, just a simple one? What if, what if you had to do three, three parts? Hopefully, you're going to say that's exactly what I'd want to do because that's what I see is three parts. 
I see, I hope some of you are saying, and this is good for everyone. This is good for all lay people. This is about meditating upon the word of God and, and thinking about the text. I hope you would see that, first of all, there's something we're to do. What we are to do. We're told by the writer what we are to do. What is it that we're to do? We're to hold fast the confession of our hope. That's what we're to do. How are we to do what we're supposed to do? If what we're supposed to do is hold fast the confession of our hope, according to the text, how? Without wavering. That's the manner. Why are we to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering? Is there any ground for us to be optimistic about doing something like that? Yes, wonderful ground. The writer says, for you can do this. You can hold fast the confession of your hope, and you can hold fast the confession of your hope without wavering. And here's why. Because the one who has given you promises is faithful. Now, you can't hold fast a confession of hope that was given to you by someone who doesn't tell the truth, who doesn't keep his promises. But because God is faithful to all of his promises, we have warrant to hold tightly our confession of hope without wavering. So there's your outline. What we are to do, how we're to do it, why we're to do it. Did you see that? I hope you you see that. And if you didn't, um, now perhaps it's clearer and you'll start to see things like that when you just analyze the text. So let's let's take a look at the first one, the part one of this. This is the second do, but let's look at it in its in these three parts. What are we to do? Well, we're to hold fast. That's the first thing I want to say. And that's the easiest thing to explain. Fast is sort of uh, in this context, sort of an old word. We don't use that too much anymore. Um, it means tightly. It means Firmly, it means with a tight grip. Um, you've heard that expression uh, that he was, well, sometimes we use the, the expression he was fast asleep. It means he was deeply, strongly asleep. But you, more often it's used with regard to holding something. It was tied down fast. Again, I know that that's sort of an older usage of the word. It doesn't mean quick. It means tight. It means firm. So that's, that's the easy part of what we're to do, uh, the hold, hold tightly, hold firmly. It's the opposite of don't let, don't let up on your grip. Don't relinquish. Now, the next two key words are confession and hope. Hold fast the confession of your hope. Confession of our hope, actually, the writer says. Now, I'm going to confess to you that it's hard for me to explain these two words separately. And I'll tell you why, because they're so closely associated to each other. And there's another word not used in our text that's even more closely associated. It's the word faith. Because faith in what God has revealed is what gives us hope. But I'm not going to focus on that right now. I want to focus on the relationship of, of uh, 
confession and hope. Now, I think the King James translation says the profession of your faith. That's, I'm sorry, that's just not a good translation. It, it should say the confession of our hope, the confession. Now, what is the meaning of confession in this context? Well, it means what we believe. Hang on tightly, says the writer, to what you believe in such a way that it has become for you your hope. You build your whole life around this that you believe and that you expect confidently. See, see, I've already lapsed into the meaning of the word hope. That's why it's so hard to separate these two concepts. But still, I'm going to work at it for a moment, and we'll put them together. Confession is what we believe. It is the truth we believe. It is the truth that we can verbalize. It, it is the content of what we are convinced is so. It is the content of what we are convinced will be is so, or will be so. It can be articulated verbally. It can be articulated in writing, written down. This confession is often the answer to the question, what do you believe about the end of the world? What do you believe about Jesus Christ's birth? Am I hearing you say that you, you believe that the Holy Spirit came over Mary and supernaturally caused her to conceive without a husband? And you may say yes, or you may elaborate, and you are giving your confession. So a confession is the, the truth that you believe, or the truths that you believe that were revealed by God in his word. That's what the confession is. It, And yes, we can write down the things that we believe God's word reveals, and then we have a confession of faith. And it's very helpful. But I'm not sure he's speaking so much formally of something written down as as rather that to which people, Christians, believe. That was their confession. Now, what about the word hope? Well, again, and you surely know that hope in the Bible isn't usually the act of hoping, it isn't what we call the hope so hope. I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow because we're going to have a ball game type thing. Hope in the New Testament especially is also something we believe and expect and are confident is going to happen based upon what we believe. In other words, Hope is, first of all, something objective, and then it's something subjective. Now, that's the second, that's the second time I've used a couple of big words. Objective means you can, you can talk about it, you can write about it, you can say words about it. It has real content and ideas. That's what I mean by objective. If you ask me, what do you believe about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ? I could say several things. I believe that he will come suddenly, unexpectedly, with great glory and power, and that he will, upon his coming, raise all of the dead and gather the whole world before him. And on I would go. And what am I doing? I'm 
I'm giving you content. I'm telling you objectively what I believe and what my hope is about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it is also a subjective thing. It isn't just objective, but it's first objective. And because we are so persuaded that he who promised is faithful, and therefore everything he has said about my present privileges and future expectations is absolutely certain to happen because we're totally persuaded of it, it does something in our souls. It makes you happily expectant. It gives you great comfort. It gives you great peace. So I'm not denying that there that there is a subjective element to hope, but hope is first things that we are certain are going to happen or are a present reality based upon the promise of God. So you see how this goes together. The confession of our hope, that body of truth that we are able to talk about which gives us great delight because we're absolutely sure it is all true, and we're sure that it's all true because the one who spoke it is faithful. Faithful is he who promised. So hope is a certain and confident persuasion concerning our present and our future. And I'm going to put this word in here, salvation. The hope that the writer is talking about is a confident persuasion concerning our present and future salvation. I use the word present and future on purpose because our hope isn't just future. Our hope is present. Our persuasion concerning the right we have to go into the holy of holies is a hope. It's a a confident persuasion that we actually do have that right And we actually are making that approach when we go by faith in the merit of Jesus Christ into the presence of God. When we are told in the scriptures that he who begins a good work in you will continue it until the day of Jesus Christ, there's a sense in which that's a present reality. That's taking place. That's part of my hope. It's something very real and very present right now. And we enjoy the promises concerning our present privileges and what is going on in our lives with regard to salvation. But it is also a persuasion about things that have not yet happened. So here we go again. Um, with regard to hope, there is, a, there is a, a now and a not yet. And you've heard that over and over around Heritage. There is a present reality to our hope, and we build much of our Christian life on that present reality, and there is also a future. And what I mean by that is the privileges and the blessings that await us upon the glorious return of our Savior and the consummation of our salvation. That's where a lot of our hope focuses our hope, our confident expectation about the the final consummation of our salvation, which takes place upon the return of Christ. And so, in a sense, hope is eschatological. There's my third big term for tonight. Indicatives, imperatives, 
the now and the not yet, and eschatological. So it simply means that there are things that God has promised. God has promised. God has promised are going to take place in the future. Some of them are in this very book. When I was giving thanks tonight for the Christian Sabbath, the Lord's Day, I couldn't help but think about the fact that it signifies and symbolizes a final rest that none of us here have entered into yet. Look, Just look quickly at Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 1 for an illustration of this. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, it still stands because it hasn't happened. It hasn't been fulfilled yet. In one sense, whenever a believer passes away, they do enter into their rest, but not in its final form. Following the judgment and the uh, renewal of the earth. And he's talking about a rest that we haven't yet, none of us tonight, entered into. If you think you've entered, we have entered into a spiritual rest. We trust in Christ. We rely upon him. We have peace. But we're still in the midst of a war. And we're still fighting against sin, and we're still fighting against the devil, and we're still fighting against the world. And we long for the day when our Savior comes back and judges the whole world, consigns the wicked to hell, renews the heavens and the earth, establishes it, and we enter into it one perpetual, sinless, glorious communion with God and with his people for all eternity. We're not there yet. But that rest has been promised. And you know what that is? That's our hope. And that's not our hope so hope. That is the confident, absolute persuasion that we who are Christians have, knowing that it's really going to happen. And again, the reason why hope is more than hoping is because of the one who spoke about it. He promised. You know, even on an earthly plane, isn't it true that when you know somebody really well and they've promised something to you, you, you sort of say things like, you know what, you can take that to the bank. I, I'm, really, I'm totally confident that that's really going to happen because he always, his word is as good as gold. Well, there is no human being who is perfectly faithful to his promises, but he who promised In this word, about present privileges and future expectations is faithful, and therefore our hope is certain. It's it's an absolute persuasion. I could show you many, many passages that speak of uh, the future promises of God's word, but I'm not going to take time. So I want to hurry. Okay, we've seen then the first part of our outline. What is it that we're to do? We're to hold fast our confession of hope. Very quickly now, in the second place, how are we to do it? How are we to hold tightly and firmly this um, confession of our hope without wavering? You all saw that. It's without wavering. What's that mean? Do I really need to answer that question? Really? You know what it means to waver. Wavering is when you fluctuate. Wavering is when you sway back and forth. Wavering is when you vacillate. Wavering is when you 
are no longer consistent. Instead of going straight ahead, you stop and go back some. Instead of going to the right, you sometimes go to the left, and then you get back to going to the right because you're supposed to be going to the right, and then you get off a little to the left, and then you get back and going to the right. You know what wavering is. And with regard to the confidence of our hope, wavering is letting go. It's not maintaining the firm grip upon the confession of our hope, the persuasion of the truthfulness of what God has promised. It's really becoming weak in confidence and faith and persuasion. It's doubting. In one sense, it's getting soft about what we really believe. And we need to be careful about that. And I have observed that the older people get, there is a tendency to get soft about what they believe. It's sort of sad. Famous theologians who have been known for their orthodoxy and their commitment to God's word sometimes get soft, soft-headed in their older age. I don't understand that phenomenon. I think there's a sense in which we all become more humble, we become more gracious, we become more kind. In the right sense, we, we perhaps are a bit more tolerant in, in, in terms of being gracious and not so quick to judge. But I'm not talking about that kind of gracious softness. I'm talking about soft-headedness. And I don't know what all the dynamics are that are operative in making people do that. But you don't have to be old to get soft. You can, be a, you can be a high school student who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ and believes with all your heart that God spoke this world into existence because the Bible says so and believes with all your heart that abortion is murder and believes with all of your heart any number of things I could go on to say. And then you get in school and you get around people that think you're kind of crazy for believing that. And especially when you get in the university, and you're laughed, and later in the job, job market, you're perhaps literally persecuted for it, or pay a price, what happens? You start letting the grip go. Your fingers start opening up just a little bit. You still have a hold of it, but you don't have that grip and hold that you once had. And that's when you desperately need to hear the Word of God saying to you, listen, since you have confidence to enter, and since there is a great priest over the house of God, draw near and hold fast. Don't start letting go of your grip. You have reason to believe what you believe. Don't get soft. You know, this, is, this passage is about perseverance, really. He's telling us we've got to do some things. In fact, it's a kind of a scary passage. Because um, if you notice uh, toward the end of the, of the passage, and next week, God willing, we'll look at the third one, which is to stir up. Draw near, hold fast, stir up. Draw near, hold fast, stir, stir up. Hold fast, and then, and then he says, I think in essence, don't want to give away too much of what I want to preach next week. One of the things that will help you hold fast is to get together with other Christians 
and stir one another up to love and good deeds. And don't quit meeting together as some people do. But be exhorting one another all the more as you see the day coming for, look at verse 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Wow, doesn't that open a whole Pandora's box of theological questions. It isn't falling from grace. It isn't losing salvation. It's proving that you were never genuinely converted to begin with. And it is, in fact, the perseverance that gives evidence that it was a genuine work of grace. We must persevere. So this whole passage is really sobering. It's, it's a call to perseverance. And I just want to say to all of us that here, here we're a church that believes um, a lot of things. And we, we believe them so firmly. We're so persuaded. They're, they're what the Bible teaches that we have, uh, with the help of our forefathers, written these things down so that they can become a standard of what the Word of God teaches And we must not get soft. We must not relinquish our grip. Hold tightly the confession of your hope. That's what he's saying. Now, thirdly and lastly, why are we to hold tightly without wavering? I gave the answer away. Are there good reasons why we should hold tightly and not waver? Listen to what the writer says. For... Here's the reason. Here's the ground. Verse 23, the latter part of it. For he who promised is faithful. Yes, we have every reason to hold tightly without wavering because the one who has set this hope before us in his word the one who has enabled us to believe what he says is true and who has produced in our souls a real joy and delight and comfort based upon the certainty of these things happening, that one is faithful. That is to say, he is truthful. He is a person of absolute integrity. He is a covenant keeping God. He is a promise keeping God. If you just notice with me, please back in chapter six, I think I'm right about this. I hope I'm right. Verse 17 and following. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise and this, this promise, by the way, if you go back to verse 14, I should have started there. It says, um, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. We've been thinking a lot about Abraham lately because of our study of Galatians. And the promise of even Galatians is that someday... The nations 
will become heirs of the promise given first to Abraham. And talking about this, the apostle said, the writer says in verse 17, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose. I just want to stop there for a moment. Are you one of the heirs of the promise? (laughs) I hope you don't have to say, well, I don't know what that means. Let me make it clear again. The promise is that through Abraham's seed, namely the Lord Jesus Christ, and trusting in him alone for salvation, we are perfectly justified. And those who trust in Jesus alone are heirs of the promise. Okay, now I'm going to ask you the question again. Are you an heir of the promise? Look what God has done for you and for me. It says, so when God desired to show more convincingly the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, why would God want to do that? Does God owe us that? The God of all truth condescending to show desire, first of all, out of a desire to more, to more convincingly help us understand the unchangeable character of his purpose. What a condescension. What a condescension on the part of God. He desired to show more convincingly the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose. So what did he do? He guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, what's that mean? Two. How do we come up with two? Well, the first is a promise. That's one. God promises. And God comes along and says, you struggle so much with unbelief, and I love you so much, and I want to help you with unbelief, and I want to help you to have confidence about your hope. I'm going to make an oath. And now there'll be two things that will help you believe. And he swears by himself. But notice the expression in verse 18. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. Two places in the New Testament we're told that it's impossible for God to lie. Only two. One's enough. Now, if it's impossible for God to lie, then do you think you have good reason to hold tightly to the confidence of your hope? The writer says, for he is faithful who promised earlier he says for he cannot lie it's impossible for him to lie that's why he's faithful god can't lie it's impossible for god to lie there's three things in the new new testament that god cannot do that's one of them he cannot act contrary to his nature he is a god of truth and therefore it's impossible for him to lie and therefore Whenever he gives a promise, he's faithful. And let me just go a little bit further because there's something I want you to see here. I should have shown this to you earlier. Verse 20 says, um, well, the rest of verse 18. We who have fled for refuge. See, he, he's, he wants to give us more reason to trust him. Who is it he wants to help? 
to uh, to be more convinced of the unchangeable character of his purpose? We who have fled for refuge so that we might have strong encouragement to do what? To hold fast the hope. Isn't that what chapter 10 and verse 23 is about? Let us hold the confidence of our Hold fast the confidence of our hope. And then he goes on to describe that we have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Who went into the inner place behind the curtain? Our Savior. See, it says where Jesus has gone as a forerunner. Aaron was not a forerunner in that type, in that sense. Aaron was a type of Christ. There's only one forerunner who could actually go into the ultimate holy of holies and to make a way. Aaron didn't make a way for us to get in there. How did you get in the holy of holies? The forerunner. Jesus went in there for us. He went behind the curtain. And then notice the latter part of the verse says, he did this on our behalf, having become a high priest for us after the order of Melchizedek. We go into the Holy of Holies because he went in first, and he went in as the forerunner for us. And the writer to the Hebrews says, guess what, readers? You have an anchor for your soul. Now, when sailors come into harbor and there's a terrible storm, they put the anchor out and down it goes, and it's unseen. And it hopefully hooks itself either into rocks or into the into the sand. And it keeps the ship from breaking up. We have an anchor for our soul. And the strangest thing of all, Piper wrote a devotional on this. I remembered it as I was studying this week, but I didn't find it again. I didn't look for it. The strange thing is our anchor is up. <laughs> our anchor is not down. Our anchor is up in the Holy of Holies where Christ has entered on our behalf. And so we have an anchor for our soul in heaven because our forerunner went there first. So the the simple thing I'm trying to say, dear people, is that we have every reason to hold tightly without wavering because our God who has given us all these promises, promises about our present relationship and privileges and promises about our future are all rooted in his faithfulness. And since we're in chapter 10, if you just go over to chapter 11 and notice verse 11, this is what sustains Sarah. How'd you like to be as old as Sarah was and be told that you're going to have a baby? How easy would that be for you to believe? Look what it says about her in verse 11, 11, 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive. By faith, she received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. That's what it's about, dear people. We need to look at every promise in the word of God that has relevance to us in this life and in the life to come, the now and the not yet, and we need to say, this is true because the one who gave it is faithful. He cannot lie. And the word of God speaks repeatedly of the faithfulness of God. 
John Brown put it like this. He said, God can as soon cease to exist as to be unfaithful to his promise. Well, this is what I leave you with. Dear people, we should be humbled by this passage because the reason why we need to be told to hold fast is because there is in with there is within every one of us the potential and the possibility of not holding fast do you ever think about keeping a firm grip upon what god's word promises when's the last time you said to yourself that's a promise i got to hold that tightly i got to keep a firm grip on this one I think I'm I think I'm prone to to loosen my grip on that promise. I think I've I think I've loosened my grip on several promises. God, forgive me. You're faithful who has promised. We need to think about that. And we need to work at strengthening our faith in the promises of God. And you say, well, how do you strengthen your faith in the promises of God? By living in the word where those promises are found. That's an interesting thing because according to the Bible, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. The promises are in the word and the way to get more faith and confidence in the the integrity of the person who made those promises is to live in that word and to memorize that word and to meditate upon that word. So when you find yourself wavering with regard to your faith, what should you do? You should fall back on the promises for people who waver and promises like 1 John 1, 9, if we, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And all of us have to say, Lord, my faith has been weak, and sometimes I haven't held on to the promises as tightly as I should. That's a sin. Forgive me. I'm going to spend more time in your word. But for now, I'm going to trust the perfect atonement of Jesus Christ, even for that particular sin. And the last thing I would say to you is keep a record of all the ways God has been true to his promises to you. Keep a record of it. And then go back and look at your journal. And you will see the the accumulative evidence that God has been true to every single promise he ever made to you. Let's pray together and ask for grace to hold fast. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this second exhortation, this second imperative, this second do. And Lord, we we see the appropriateness of us holding fast, and we thank you for the reason that we can do this because of your faithfulness. But Lord, help us to do that. This is a may may every one of us leave this building tonight and and say I have something to do. I have something to do. I am to hold tightly to the confession of my hope. Lord, may we all resolve to do that by your grace. Bless us in the week to come. Help us to be faithful to you. And may we be brought together at the midweek to do these one another's in each other's lives, to build each other up in the most holy faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.